0: To you this morning, my excitement to preach out of the Old Testament is tempered by the fact that I've got to preach from Ecclesiastes, and it's difficult sometimes. Uh, it's, a, it's a book that we have to struggle to find the hope and the positive in. Uh, we're going to pick up right where Pastor John left off in our text from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I'm going to read this uh, starting in verse 19 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll pray. It says, Wisdom give strength to the wise men more than 10 rulers who are in a city surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins do not take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you your heart knows that many times you yourself you yourself have cursed others all this i have tested by wisdom i said i will be wise but it was far from me that which has been afar off And deep, very deep, who can find it? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold... This is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among these I have not found. See this alone I found, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning seeking to learn from your word. I ask that you would help me to faithfully preach it, and that you would open the ears of the congregation to hear, that you might bless your word to us this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So this morning we're going to talk about wisdom, humility, and snares, and how God made men upright. But the context in which we approach these 10 verses that we look at this morning comes on the heels of Pastor John's sermon from the previous several verses from last week, if you remember a brief recap, uh, we we read about how the preacher laments and and expresses his frustration over the fact that he's seen the wicked prosper and the righteous die, and how it, it appears from all outward appearances that things are not as they should be. As a matter of fact, in the previous verses, uh, the preacher laments the fact that it, it, he gives us those confusing statements not to be too righteous or too wicked as if those two things were possible, but if you recall the sermon last week, those two things are, are, are really getting at the heart of hypocrisy, that we shouldn't be completely given over to our sins, but we also should not have that haughty appearance of false righteousness uh, that you can often point to in people who stand behind golden pulpits and proclaim uh, the fact that wealth ought to follow the believer, right? What hypocrisy we should avoid. Uh, that's, that's really the, 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 the thrust of, of what we were observing in the last verses. And, and it's in that context, the frustration of seeing wicked, wicked people prosper, while the, the righteous die after seeing this, the preacher here admonishes us to avoid that hypocritical outward display of haughty righteousness, fake holiness you might call it, but he also admonishes us not to be overly worldly. There's, there's a name for that. That's called antinomianism, the idea that the law no longer applies to us and we might just do whatever we want. On Romans chapter 6, it tells us the opposite of that, right? What should we say? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. So when we look at that, it's the backdrop, this outward frustration in these obs- observations from verse 15 through 18 that the context of these next few verses takes place. Here, from, from an ex exterior view of what's happening outside of himself in the world the righteous die while the wicked perish Koheleth, the preacher turns his turns his gaze inward so we've gone from external to internal and he looks inside here the preacher turns his gaze inwards to the wickedness and the wisdom of the wise so in verse 19, the preacher describes the wisdom of the wise in contrast to the council of a city's rulers. It's interesting as you look into the um, culture and time period that this would have been written in and that number, 10 rulers in the city, uh, might be significant in that that's that's a, that's a round number that would have been uh, the, the ruling class of a city. So you understand that they didn't have city councils like we do with with uh, elected officials and the mayor and things like that. Uh, There were often walled cities that were ruled by monarchs that had a group of counselors who would advise them. We even see this in Solomon's own court, uh, which we'll get into later. Uh, But the idea here is, if if you look, the wisdom of the wise is set against the counsel of a city's advisors, of a city's rulers in verse 19. One commentator has said that internal wisdom is needed more than advice from without. But I need to clarify that in the context here. The wisdom spoken of here is that wisdom that comes from God and does not germinate within the individual. It is an alien substance. And having spent a lot of a lot of time since at least since I've been a part of this congregation in the New Testament, that that idea of an alien substance in, in the heart of a believer should be really familiar to us. Because Christ's righteousness given to us is an alien righteousness. It's the same concept here. The wisdom that we read of is an alien wisdom given to us by God. In fact, the point is taken well because Solomon asked for wisdom from God in 1st Kings chapter 3 so this juxtaposition is meant in this passage of scripture to to set the wisdom that comes from God up against the wisdom of the rulers of this world wisdom in verse 19 is better than the advice of counselors So we've mentioned before in this sermon series, Kohaleth, the preacher. Though we don't have any internal claim to the authorship in this book, there are some heavy indications that it was Solomon. And as we read in this passage today, it's one of those heavy indicators in this passage of Scripture that is it is indeed Solomon, the third king of a united Israel, that, that writes this to us. And in that particular Context when we know that the authorship, some things begin to stand out about what he's claiming in these verses. The point is taken because we see that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, listened to the wrong external counsel and the consequence of his listening to young counselors rather than wise counselors was that the kingdom was split and he lost most of it. You see in the context of the life of Solomon how this wisdom from God is really juxtaposed to the wisdom of the world. But verse 19 and 20 are are linked by a tiny conjunction that's left untranslated in many of our Bibles. I've read to you this morning from the ESV, the English Standard Version, and in verse 20 the, the verse starts out by saying, "...surely." If you were to read the New American Standard, it would say, indeed. It's a tiny little Hebrew word that means indeed, or surely, or even but, or therefore. So we see that verse 19 is because of, or it is the result of, what we read in the very next verse. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. It's very interesting and and very startling to hear such an admission from a ruler of the United Kingdom, one who the Bible really looks at as a good king, a good ruler, a wise man. The wise must rule because no one is righteous. Not even the wisest King Solomon was a totally righteous man. Indeed, he says here, no one is without sin. Wisdom is better because even the righteousness sin. And this is echoed in the New Testament in the letter of Paul to the Romans. Do you know what I'm going to say? Do you, do you, does that verse come to your mind? Indeed, Paul may be quoting here or at least referencing this passage when he says in Romans 3.10 that there is no one who is righteous not even one. When we get that into our heads, it really does humble us. In 1908, the Times newspaper in England asked several authors to contribute to the newspaper on the topic of what is wrong with the world. And the famed G.K. Chesterton submitted the briefest response you can imagine. He simply said, dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> what a humble response, but how true is that, right? Continuing the thought from that previous verse in 20, the, the preacher gives a specific example to humble the reader because it's, it's really easy to read something and be detached from it, shaking your head in agreement. You know, yeah, yeah, that's right. We all sin. Without putting yourself in that same condition with the people that it's speaking about. Though verse 20 needs little exposition, the preacher reminds us of how easy it is to hold others to a higher standard than we hold ourselves, particularly in our speech. What it says do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. As far as introspection goes, that's a pretty good one. That's, that's, that's pretty self-aware for someone to make that observation. And this, once again, is echoed in our New Testament Scripture in, in James chapter 3. I'm going to read a pretty good passage here. This is verse 2 through 10, but Think, think about this. It's often very beneficial to us to read the Old Testament through the lens, through the interpretive rubric of the New Testament. And James says this. We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Also able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses... So that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. That's why I say, as far as introspection goes, what an incredible observation that the preacher makes of his own life. There is no righteous person. We should not take care to hear every insult offered toward us because we have cursed other people. As he continues... The preacher, our Kohaleth, expresses exasperation once again in the next several verses in 23 through 25. You see a pattern. Look at what he says, starting in verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is afar off and very deep. Who can find it? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Do you see the pattern? I tested. I will be wise. What I sought was far from me. I directed my mind to know. Verse 25 is telling. Because we know from Solomon's story that he attempted to understand the foolishness of insanity that he talks about here by participating in it. It's stupid. How? He says, I, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things, to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness It's often, like, like I said earlier, beneficial to read this through a New Testament lens of understanding. First Corinthians chapter 3, 18 through 20 is really applicable here. Let no one deceive himself as anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So, how did Solomon, this preacher, participate in the madness and folly that he tried to understand? Anybody want to take a guess? Besides the wisdom of Solomon, what else is he known for? How many wives did he marry? Besides his concubines. Seven hundred wives? 300 concubines I have one wife and sometimes I'm miserable about it 700 wives and 300 concubines so let's talk about the wisdom of the world in comparison to the wisdom that comes from God Solomon the preacher he participates his attempts to understand this madness and falling, it, it, it led him to the arms of a thousand seductresses. In 26, he even says that what he has ultimately found is more bitter than death, the woman who ensnares. So we've painted the picture, right? Solomon, 700 women that are wives, 300 further that are, are concubines, those are round numbers, and in the reality, we're probably talking more than, than what's documented with round numbers of a thousand women. Understand that at the time, these may have been considered political marriages, the, the pinnacle of the wisdom of this world, right? In these monarchical small kingdoms, it was, it was wise to intermarry because they forged alliances with your potential enemies, But what did God tell His people when they went in to the promised land? The specific instruction was to avoid intermingling. That the men of Israel should not look upon the wives of the Canaanites, or the women of the Canaanites, to make them wives. This is really a tacit admission of the preacher's own folly, as we know what happened solomon's heart was turned from god to the gods of his wives first kings chapter 11 verse 1 through 13 gives us the story it's 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 like god knew what he was talking about he knew exactly what he was talking about when he said when you go into the land and you see oops and you see the the daughters of the canaanites you're going to say, they're beautiful. We want to marry them. And God says, don't do that. They're, turn your heart away from me. And that's exactly what happened with Solomon. The consequences of Solomon's heart being turned due to this ensnarement was severe. In 1 Kings eleven thirteen, that passage that I just referred you to, he only maintains the throne of Israel. Because of God's promise to his father David. But even though he remained on the throne, God told him that his kingdom would be severed. We've already mentioned how Rehoboam, his son, lost most of his kingdom when it was divided because he did not listen to wise counsel. So think about that for a second. Verse 26 says that one who is pleasing to God escapes the ensnares, the ensnarement of the seductress. But Solomon didn't escape, did he? What an admission. So what did the preacher find in all of his searching? verses 27 through the end it says behold this is what I found says the preacher while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly but I have not found perhaps blinded as he was by the thousands of women who ensnared him this is what I found one man among a thousand I found but a woman among these I have not Though he still searches, he hasn't found. But we can perceive something from the outside that perhaps Solomon didn't. We may also draw the conclusion, we can't always explain why it seems like the wicked prosper and the righteous die. Indeed, he even says here that he only finds one in a thousand men to be faithful, and not a single woman Don't miss what he's saying here by counting this statement as pure misogyny. In my research, looking into this scriptural passage, there are many on the liberal side of belief that would say this is just, this is just an ancient man tearing down women. That it's misogynistic. Think about the truth of the statement that Solomon didn't find any good women only seductresses who turned his heart from God. In fact, the preacher, later on, just two chapters from here, extols the virtues of a good wife in chapter 9. And if indeed it is Solomon who writes this scripture, we also have an entire book in the Song of Solomon that extols the virtues of a holy marriage. So what are we to take from this? Is... is, is the preacher just ripping on women no no this is simply an introspection that reveals to us that when you really look deeply in your own heart you're not a good person either men women it doesn't matter we've all fallen short of the glory of god it's an incredible confession of sin on the part of the of the preacher and in the final tally we learn this God made people upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This should immediately confirm to all of us the universal good of our Creator and the universal corruption of humanity. Notice how verse 29 really mirrors verse 19. There's no one who doesn't sin because we've all sought out schemes. This has really come alive to me as we've been doing the evangelism outreach at our Friday After Five, the first one that we did in June. But I've made it a personal commitment to go down Friday evenings every week and try to share the gospel with people. And in the conversations that I have, we always start by pointing them to the law. Because when you point to the law of God, you cannot help but convict yourself. Ask someone sometime if they've ever told a lie. Let me me jump the shark a little bit. If they tell you they haven't, they just lied. Right? Ask someone if they've ever stolen anything, even, even something small or even like another person's idea, intellectual theft. Put them on the spot. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Well, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've even looked at someone with lust in your heart, you're already guilty of adultery. It would be amazing what, what people do when they're confronted with their own sin. They convict themselves. There's no one who doesn't sin. And if we're honest with ourselves, it, it leads us to Confession repentance just like we did at the start of our service this morning what can we take away from this what's the what's the conclusion like i said sometimes in ecclesiastes it's the it's the lament of a person who's lost a lot who's seen the wicked prosper and the righteous die and we sometimes struggle to see the light within these passages but what what can we take from this first Deep introspections on our own sin is so good for us. Imagine, Solomon must have felt great catharsis from this confession of his sin in this passage. And though he fell greatly, he is still remembered in Scripture as a good king. His father, David, wasn't allowed to build the temple because he was a man of blood. God called him a man of blood, but he also called him a man after God's own heart. Introspection on our own sin is a good thing. It keeps us humble. It keeps us kneeling before God's throne repeatedly over and over again, coming to him once again and confessing, Lord, we've, we've, we've messed up again. Secondly, the concept in this passage of wisdom is as a foreign substance, and that matches up really well with our, doc, our, our doctrine of the imputation of righteousness. Once again in the New Testament, James chapter 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who Gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to them. Just like the righteousness of Christ that is ours when we kneel and confess our sins and ask for forgiveness, wisdom too is available for the asking. And it's given without reproach. And finally, and though this may seem cliche if we meditate upon it for a second, it it really gives us comfort. And that is, God is good. And He made humanity good. Don't buy the lie that evil is proof that God doesn't exist. or, Or that if He does exist, He isn't good because evil exists in the world. No, God is good. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And it's the error that we see when we deeply, introspectively look to our own sin that made the world fall. Introspection is good, wisdom is foreign, and God is good. Amen.